0: Let us go into prayer and then we'll get into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you are good, you are mighty. God, that's been my prayer this week, Lord. I pray that you help the body of Christ, this body, Lord, to behold your glory. Oh God, to see you beautiful, to fall in love with your character, your attributes, just you, who you are, Lord God. God, I pray when they go down to their knees, Lord God, And they open up your word, Lord, that you just jump off of the pages into their eyes, into their mind, Lord, that they see you. And that they're motivated by the beauty of who you are, your character, your person. God, allow us to behold you today, Lord, in your word. Allow us to see you in your glory, God. It's your glory, God, that strengthens us. It's a power, God, as we see you. So have your way, God. Have your way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Ephesians, and uh, this, we had a good discussion the last time I was up here on Ephesians, not the previous week, but a couple weeks back. Uh, Emil, Emil asked a question, and Sister Debbie made a good response, and we had a great discussion. It was about beholding God, and so that's been stuck on my heart, um, praying that we can begin to behold Christ more and more, and so that's really what I wanna just speak on before we just jump right into the text. Um, What I'm trying to do here in the book of Ephesians is I wanna preach the book of Ephesians, how Paul writes it. And I mentioned this before, so if Paul is calling for action, I wanna call for action in the text. But if if Paul is calling for something else, I wanna call whatever Paul is calling for. And if you've seen so far, at least in the first three verses, Paul is not calling for any action. He's not calling for any action. Paul is calling for praise, we've seen so far. Remember, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's showing why God should be praised. So Paul is not talking about doing anything right now. He's not talking about any action. He's just talking about us beholding God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we get into chapter 4, then we will get into the actual works. Then we will get into our actions and our, and our response and what we must do. But right now, in chapter 1, Paul is not calling for actions. He's calling for praise. He's calling for you to behold the glory of God. And so that's where we are right now. There is no action item. Some of you work in offices, right? Emil, you know this, I'm sure. You work in the office and you go into a meeting and after a meeting we say, okay, who has the action item, right? That means who's gonna do, whose responsibility is to take this task to the next step? Where's the action item? That's what we say in, in, the, in the business world. Well, here in Ephesians chapter one, there is really no action item other than praise. That's what Paul is trying to get us to see here. In the first three verses is about praise, showing how good and blessed God is. And in five through six, he'll also show us more about why God is so worthy to be praised. Paul is focusing right now just on praise. Not your works, not your actions, not your deeds. Your mind is focused on God and his glory. And so since he's teaching us this way, that's the way I'm teaching it as well. And really this is something my brothers and sisters that we have to start doing more and more when it comes to reading the scriptures. Because oftentimes when we're reading the Bible, we go to the scripture and we're looking for the action or the work that we must do. We'll read the Bible and we're like, okay, this is saying I need to be a better husband or this is saying I need to be a better wife or this is saying that I, I need to be a better, better spouse or I need to treat my kids or our friends better. But oftentimes in the Bible, the word of God is just trying to get us to behold the glory of God. But yet we're kind of looking for an action item. We're looking for something to do. See, there's such a, a Pharisee in us in a sense. Where we, we want a rule or we want a regulation. Tell, tell me what I must do. Give me an action that I must do. But oftentimes in the scriptures, it's not telling you to do anything. It's describing Jesus. It's describing the glory of God, and it wants you to behold what God is doing. And one of those places that comes to mind um, is, for example, in John chapter 6. You remember in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the multitude, right? He feeds the multitude, Then the next day, The multitude, they're looking for Jesus all over the place. I told you this is a sermon in a sermon. We'll get to Ephesians, but I really want you to just focus on beholding right now. So in John 6, Jesus feeds a multitude, and and the next day, all the people are looking for Jesus. And the reason they're looking for Jesus is because, not that they want more of Jesus, but they want more of what is in Jesus' hand. They want what Jesus is giving, right? They wanted the food. He said, you want me because of the loaves, not because of what you've seen. So everyone in Jesus just for the, for the food. And matter of fact, go, go to John. I just want to show you something. Go to John 6. And I want to I point out some things in this dialogue. John 6, 28. This is all a prep or prologue into what we we'll eventually get into. So in John 6... Verse 28, Jesus feeds the people, previous day, now they're looking for him, for this food. Jesus says in 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. And in 28, he says this, therefore, I'm sorry, they said to him, this is the people, this is the dialogue between Jesus and the people, he says, what, they said, what shall we do so that we may, what, work the works of God. So what's on their mind right now? work right what shall we do that we may work the works of god right now they're thinking about again action what what work was, must we we do i was reading some commentators and they were saying because it's a largely a jewish audience they're looking for other rules and laws and regulations outside of the law that they have to do so they're saying jesus okay what what work was, must we do And that's just kind of really just like us. We're reading the scriptures and we're trying to find what work or what action must we do. We're looking for the action item. But then Jesus says in 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you must do. Basically, that you believe in him who he has sent. That is the action item right there. You're looking for work. You're looking for more rules, more regulations. You're looking for something for you to do. He says, no, the work that you must do is to believe. That's it. Believe. That's what he's telling them. You must believe. Believe what? Believe in who he is. Look what he says later on in verse 40. In the same group of people, he says this. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who, key word again, beholds the son. Again, that everyone beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So what is he saying again? He said, for this is the will of my father. It's not your work. It's not your action. But everyone that beholds the son I love this word. I know in the King James Version, it says to see, but this is not just a simple see, but to behold means to look at something intently or to think on something in the heart and mind to behold Christ is to see him with your whole person. You're seeing the glory of who he is. That's what it means to behold. He said who beholds the son. To confirm the definition, I had uh, Googled behold. And Google's definition of behold was this, to see or observe a thing or person, especially a remarkable or impressive one. That's what it means, to behold, to see or observe something that's remarkable or impressive. Thayer's Greek lexicon explains this word, behold, which in Greek is theoreal or theoreal. Here in John 640, it means to look as upon in some respectable or noteworthy manner. That's what it means to behold Jesus. See, it's it's something different from just saying, I believe in Jesus, I'm seeing Jesus in the scriptures. It's another thing to actually behold Jesus and to see him as he is, to see him in his glory. Some of you are saying, okay, brother, you're in Ephesians, why are you talking about this beholding stuff? Where is this beholding coming from? The reason I'm telling us this as a body, because if you try to live for Jesus and follow Jesus without regularly beholding Jesus in the gospel, guess what? You're going to have a miserable life. (laughs) Because your whole life is going to be all rules and regulations. I can't do this. I can't do that. You have to first behold, and then you go and do But if you just try to just take Jesus, just go ahead, go ahead and take the Sermon on the Mount. Go ahead. Go ahead and try to just live that out without beholding Jesus. Go ahead and just try to take those rules and regulations and say, I'm going to keep all of these rules. You you can't. It's going to be a miserable thing. See, beholding Jesus is actually where we get our strength and power from. See, the hope that we have in Jesus and the gospel actually empowers us to live out what we see in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. But if you try to just take Jesus' word and say, I'm going to keep all of these commands. He says, I have to go and make disciples, so I'm going to go and make disciples. He, he says, I have to go and serve the poor, so I'm going to go and do it. If you try to just do that in your own effort without beholding Jesus on a regular basis and seeing his glory, it's going to be a miserable Christian life. Because your whole life is going to be full of rules and regulations. And you're not beholding the beauty. You're not beholding the beauty of the head and seeing them in his glory. And it's just, it's just all rules. All rules and all regulations. And that will be a hard, hard Christian life. So my brother and sister, I want to ask you this question here. What sin are you struggling with right now? Don't say it out loud. What sin are you struggling with right now? And my question is, are you trying to defeat that sin in your own strength? How do I say this? Are you just trying to just push with all of your might and all of your strength, with all of your human energy? If you are, I wanna challenge you this. How about you step back and just gaze on Jesus in the gospel. Take your mind off of my sin and what I need to do, the actions I need to do to get over the sin and all the things I need to do, but just step back and just gaze at the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ in the gospel and let that be the thing that helps you to overcome. Because oftentimes we put so much focus on our sin and praying, God, I need to stop doing this action, I need to stop doing this thing, How often do we step back and just say, I'm just going to gaze at Jesus in the gospel. I'm just going to gaze on my salvation. I'm just going to gaze on what he has done on the cross and how I was separated from God, but he has now made me one with the Lord and how I'm going to live forever with him eternally. How about you just step back and gaze at the gospel and take the attention off of your sin and just behold Jesus and who he is. Behold his holiness. Stop thinking about yours so much something about your actions so much, but step back and look at Jesus. Put your eyes on him. We must behold Jesus in the scripture. He who beholds the son, to look at him intently. That's something brothers and sisters you have to do. If you're gonna walk out and live this this Christian life. And here's the secret, not a secret, but it's not a secret, it's in the scripture here's the truth while I'm, i am telling you to behold god i'm told, i'm telling you to behold jesus the truth of the matter is it's really a sovereign work of god to help you actually to behold and see christ we we have those moments where we're reading and god allows us to just behold and see the glory of god and it's really his work We're responsible for the diligence. We're responsible for making the time in prayer. We're responsible for getting in our word. We're responsible for separating ourselves so we can go in our prayer closet and pursue God. But ultimately, ultimately, it's God's sovereign work to reveal and to show his glory. So that should be our prayer. As we go in the scriptures, your prayer should be, God, help me to just behold you. Help me to behold you and see you in your glory and, and see you for who you are. And not just what I'm reading in the scriptures. God, help me to see you in flesh and blood. Help me to see you in 3D and in, in the clear. Let, let me see you, Lord God. Help me to see your glory. That has to be our prayer. And God in the sovereign will, he will show himself. But at his time and at his place, at whenever he chooses to do that. So go ahead, Be diligent. But understand, and we'll look at this later in Ephesians where Paul says his prayer for them that they will grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God. Like, that's part of the prayer that God opens up and shows them. He prays about that. Why? Because we can't just make it happen. We can't just go and see glory. God actually does the work. We do the diligent part. And we go and put ourselves in that position where he does show us his glory. And God, one of the things he's done for me this week, and just one more text I want to show you before we get into Ephesians, help me just to see the glory of, of Matthew twenty twenty eight. I, I just want to kind of go over it with you and show you what God's just showing me in that. Um, Matthew twenty twenty eight is the place where Jesus, he's um, with the disciples and you have the sons of Zebedee, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She comes to Jesus and this is where people say there's no comedy in the Bible, but I believe if you look at it right, you can see things that are really funny in a sense. And hear me out before you say, what are you talking about, Jerome? You have the sons of Zebedee. The mother, she comes to Jesus, and she tells Jesus, or she asks Jesus this question. She says, um, she wants her both her sons to sit one at Jesus' right hand and one at his left hand in his kingdom. Right? This is the mother. She's coming to Jesus. Jesus can one of my can my boys sit on your right hand and on your left hand? And when the disciples hear it, this is where to me this is funny. When the disciples hear it. The scripture says that the disciples became indignant with the two brothers. Now, the reason I think this is hilarious is because the two brothers didn't ask Jesus this question. It was their mama, right? It, it was their mom. And so when I, when I see this, I just think about the disciples like, man, go get your mom. Like, why is your mom always tripping? Why is she, why is she doing that? So they're mad at the two brothers for something that their mom said, right? So I just think that's hilarious because I've seen that where it's like, man, go get your mom. Why is your mom always acting out or acting crazy sometimes? And so that's what's happening here with the disciples. They're like, dude, what's up with your mom? So they're mad at the two brothers for something that their mom said. And so, uh, so they're mad about that. And Jesus, they get onto the the topic of greatness, and and Jesus says in his discussion, because remember, she wants him to be great. Jesus tells the disciples that to be great among a group of people, the person or the person that's going to be great is the person that's serving, right? That's what Jesus says in here. And then he says this glorious statement here. Let me get here real quick for you. I'm not even there. Matthew 20. He says this glorious statement in in Matthew 20, 28. Talking about greatness. Because remember, they want to know how to be great. Jesus says to be great, you have to serve. You have to be a servant. But then he says this statement here. I'll start in 27. Or 26. it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom, what? For many. I've read that verse a ton of times, right? Just like some of you, but it was the other week where God allowed me to just behold this verse and to see the glory of it. Because do you really realize what Jesus is saying here? This is Jesus, God in the flesh. This is the one who actually created the earth. This is what John 1.3 says, that all things came into being through Jesus. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through him. This same Jesus who created the earth said he came to earth to what? Serve. To serve, which, which fits right in with Philippians 2 where, where it says that Jesus took upon the form of a bond servant. See, I, I think about like Greek mythology. When you look at many of their gods in Greek mythology and all of those mythological gods, gods were the Lord, G and goddesses, they came from the mind of men. And so those gods were really like men. They had men's cravings. So many of those gods had the same sinful cravings as we had. Many of those gods craved for like desire for, for money, for sexual pleasures, for, for power. They were gods made in men's own image. That's why those gods looked just like men. But when you look at Jesus fully divine, he is nothing like men would make if God ever came to earth he 's nothing at all like those Greek mythological characters he's totally he 's something that is totally different back in back in the nineties there was this song called "What if God was One of Us?" Do you guys remember that? Yeah. What if God was one of us right it 's by Joanne Osborne and as I was reading this text i 'm thinking about that. It's not what if God was one of us, but God did become like one of us. But when he became like one of us, he guess what he didn't become prideful like one of us. He didn't seek power of this world like one of us. He didn't seek the earthly presence of this world like one of us. He he became obedient to the father like none of us. See, he did become like one of us. But in one sense he came like none of us. Because he he lived the life of perfect obedience to the Father. See, this this, this blows me away that this is the God that we serve. He left heaven to come down here to be a servant. To live a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And one of his objectives from verse 28, he says, Outside of servant was to give his life as a ransom for many which means that Jesus Christ came to earth to die. That's, that's part of the reason he came to earth to die so that you and I might live. And you're saying, brother Jerome, you're just preaching the gospel. Yes, this is the gospel. This is what Paul did to the churches all the time. You, the gospel is not something you just know when you first become a Christian, but it's something that is repeated and that you dwell on and think on. But yes, that is what Jesus came to do. That's part of his mission. He came to earth to give his life as a ransom, meaning to die so that you may live. And what blows me away is this. Is that before I came, some of you have this testimony as well. Before you came to know God, before I came to know God, I grew up going to church. I, I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up ushering. I grew up singing the word of God, but it was not until my early 20s where I came to understand that because of my sins against God, I was walking around with a death sentence over my head. Jesus came to die for that. You ever seen death row prison inmates? Death row prison inmates, guess what? They look like everybody else in general population they wear the same clothes like everybody else in general population. They may talk like the same people in general population, but guess what? When you go into that inmates file, you will see that that inmate is scheduled for execution at some point in the future. My brother and sister, that was you and I before Christ. Yes, we looked like everybody else. We moved like everybody else. We had jobs like everybody else, but just like everybody else, if you go and you looked into our file, you will see that because of our sin and rebellion against God that you and And I had a scheduled date of execution because of our sins. This is all of us. Every person in here. And that is why Jesus came to die. That is one of the missions and objective of him coming to earth to give his life as a ransom. So that he would take on your death sentence. So that he would take on your penalty. That's that's the God in here that we serve. That's the gospel. I know you heard it over and over, but I'm praying that God allows you to not just hear it, but to behold it. Pray that God allows you to behold his gospel and his son Jesus Christ more and more in your life to where you see these scriptures that you read, where you read the gospel before, but when you see it now that your eyes become even more open and you are more passionately in love with Jesus. My church, the church of God, please pray this, my brothers and sisters, to see the glory of God. To understand that you had this death sentence on your head. He gave his life so that you can now live. And not just live as people. But so that you can now live as sons and daughters of God. I just had a big statement. Sons and daughters of God. Which takes us to Ephesians now. Now we can get to Ephesians. I want to show you this big statement of being a son or daughter of God. Which is where we'll spend the rest of our time today. Again, I said all that to say I just I'm praying. My prayer for you is the prayer to ask God to help you to behold Him, to not just see Him in the Scripture, but to behold Him, to look at Him intently, and to see Him. So now we're back in our in our in our text. So that was a mini sermon in a sermon, as I as I mentioned. So we are today. We'll be looking at. Ephesians 5-6, we looked at 4 the previous week, but what I want to do for our reading and our time, I want us to kind of go back over 1-6, through six. I'm going to read 1-6, through six, and then we'll look at it. So I'm going to just read it briefly again, because we haven't read it in a while. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at verse four, and we looked at how from the foundation of the world, God has chosen us to be holy and blameless before him, right? That's what we looked at in verse four. God accomplishes our work of sanctification, right? That's what we came to see. Remember our sanctification is right now, and it's in the future. God accomplished our right now sanctification. So because you are in Jesus Christ right now, you stand holy and blameless before the father. That is your position. It is one of holy and blameless right now. But yet we also looked at how there's a day-to-day sanctification, right? Even though we are positionally right now holy and blameless before God, day-to-day we have to fight against sin, right? Day-to-day we have to pursue holiness. Day-to-day we have to pursue righteousness. That's our not yet of our sanctification. That's that's what we looked at uh, the previous week. Now, as so we go from verse four to five and six, The Apostle Paul is gonna go from our sanctification status, this is important, he's gonna go from our sanctification status to our relation status, our familiar status with God. So he's gonna go again from our sanctification status, which is verse four, he's talking about how holy we are because of Christ. And in verse five and six, he's gonna transition from that to our relation to God, to our relation to God. And what I mean by relation is this, if some of you have kids, you know this, when you have kids and you gotta sign them up, that paper always says this, what is your what? Relationship to what? This child. And you write in there, I am mother, I am father, I am whatever. That's your relationship to this child. Paul is gonna ask us, or gonna bring out the question, what is your relation to God? What is your status? It, it, it's kinda like this. All of us have a Facebook page, for the most part I would say. If you go on your Facebook page, There's something on your Facebook page called a relationship status, right? We know what that is. Your relationship status. If that person you're married to has a Facebook, it'll say, I am married to such and such person. My relationship status on Facebook shows that I am married to Esmeralda Wade. If you're dating somebody and you want to put it on there, it'll say you are married to such and such a person. That's your relationship status. The question we're trying to determine today: If Facebook had a relationship status to God, what would yours say? That's ultimately what I'm what I'm trying to get at. What what would your status say? Um, there, there's a, there's a saying in millennial circles. And yes, I speak of millennials as if I'm not one because I really don't claim them. But in, in, in millennial circles, there's a status called Facebook official. All right, what does Facebook mm-hmm. official mean? Does anybody want to answer that for me? When it's like legit. When, yeah, right. Facebook official means when your status is when you're dating somebody and you're going public with it and it's showing your status of now I'm truly in a relationship with this person. So when Oleg married Linda, he changed his status to I am married to Linda. Now he's Facebook official. That's his relation status, right? So my question is, if Facebook had a status when it came to your relation to God, what would that show? What would that status be? And you answer this question by answering this, or you find that answer by answering this question Who do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins? Do you believe that you can only be reconciled to God, not through your works, but only through faith alone in Him? Do you believe that Jesus lived a holy and perfect and blameless life? When you can answer that, right or in the affirmative, your Facebook status would be son or daughter of God. That would be your status because of your relationship to Christ. But if you answer that in the negative, the Bible would describe your relation status to God as this, a child of wrath. Ephesians 2.3. That's how the Bible would describe you because you have no relationship with Christ. It would describe you as a stranger, Ephesians 2.12, or it may even be a blank there. It would describe you as a child of the devil. It would describe you as, according to Romans 1.29-30, as unrighteous, a murderer, a slanderer, arrogant, evil, or wicked. That would be your status outside of Christ. That would be who you are. And so what Paul is doing in here, he's trying to show the Ephesian church the glory of God in the fact that he has given them this new status of being sons and daughters of God, which you will see in five and six. So in verses three through four, Paul is showing that Jesus Christ, our God the Father, has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ, right? But in 4, 5, and 6, he only enumerates two of them. He enumerates one that God has chosen, from, chosen us from the foundation of the world, which is our sanctification status. That's the one that he enumerates. And the second one out of all the blessings that he can pull out is our relation status to God, that we are adopted into the family of God. So, Paul wants the Ephesian church to know out of all things, out of all the spiritual blessings, he wants to assure them one of their sanctification, which he shows us in verse 4 that you stand holy and blameless before God because of Christ. The second thing that he wants to confirm for them is that they are sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. And so he shows us that the same people in verse 4 who were holy and blameless from the foundation of the world because of Jesus Christ, are now the same people in verse 5 and 6 who are now sons and daughters of God. So I I, want to show you that this is a big point. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Look what he says here. He's pointing out two major sanctification things. Sancti- I mean, two major blessings in Christ. Their sanctification status, which we have already looked at, and he's also going to show their relation status to God. These are the two blessings that he really wants to highlight. Remember, there's the number of God's blessings that we have in Christ goes without number. You can count them for days, but it's just the two here that Paul is really highlighting. And so look what he does in 4 and 6. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So again, the key point that I want you to see here is that the same people that God has chosen from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him are the same people in verse five and six that he is also predestined to be sons and daughters of God. Do you see that? This should remind you of something that Pastor Brian just preached a few weeks ago. This is very reminiscent of Romans eight. Romans 8, verse 29. Go to Romans 8, verse 29. I want to show you how Paul is making this same argument here in Romans eight twenty nine. Go there real quick. I know this is technical, but I want you to see it. Romans 8, 29. Look what the Bible says here. This is Paul. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, Remember, this foreknew, we see from Ephesians 1, that this foreknowing is what? From the foundation of the world. So when you see this foreknow, you know where this is coming from. So those he foreknew from the foundation of the world, per Ephesians 1, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you see what he's saying here? So the same people that God foreknew here from the foundation of the world are the same people that he has also um, predestined to be conformed to the image of the son. That's the same thing that Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5. The same people that God has chosen from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him are the same people that Paul, that God has chosen to be sons and daughters of God. It's, It's the same thing. So we're seeing that God from the foundation of the world is, is choosing a people, one that's going to be holy and blameless before him, and those same people that he has chosen that are going to be holy and blameless before him are the same people that he has predestined to be adopted into his family. This is a great thing. See, uh, this, is, this is so, I'm, I'm trying to put this together because this, this is so, big and huge what Paul is saying here. Uh, Let me maybe back up to what he's saying here. I I really, five and six, you really have to see why this is such a big deal that Paul is saying that you have been adopted into the family of God. You really have to get this to understand that when you say you are a child or daughter of God, it is not a minor thing, but it is a major thing. But let me back up. Maybe I can explain it this way. In verse four, to be holy and blameless before God, right? It's something that we should all desire. What you say as believers, right? We all wanna stand before God, righteous. We all wanna stand before God, holy and blameless. We don't want our garments to be dirty, right? We, we want our garments to be spotless. We want our garments to be washed in the blood of Jesus, to be pure and white. Because of our garments, when we stand before God, if they're not pure and white, we know how that's gonna end, right? We know how that's gonna end because Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 22 in the parable of the marriage feast. Do you remember that parable? In the parable of the marriage feast, the person or the gentleman that didn't have the right garment on, what happened to that person if you remember that parable? Jesus called his servants around him to bind that man hand and feet to wrap them up and to throw them into outer darkness. And he said, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? So it matters what you will be wearing on the day of judgment, right? It matters that you are wearing the, the righteousness of Christ. And so we should rejoice that because of Jesus, we stand holy and blameless before God. But here's the thing, to stand holy and blameless before God, while it is a great thing and it is something that we should really cherish, It is not something that is exclusively shared by humans or image bearers. Do you get what I'm saying here? It is not something that is exclusive to humans or image bearers. Why? Because we understand that God select angels, right? That stand in his presence. They stand before him holy and blameless, right? That's why they can stand in his presence. We look at Revelation, you have the living creatures, right? Those living creatures stand before Jesus. They stand before the lamb. They stand before the throne and they say, holy, holy, holy. You have the seraphim, right? That flies around. Remember, you you can't be in God's presence unless you are holy. You don't have a spot on you. But so we have seraphim that they actually fly around. They, what they talk about the holiness of God and you have, uh, what's the other one? Seraphim. You have the, uh, it's another creature I'm thinking about. Um, I can't think of it. I didn't write them down. But you have the seraphim. You have the living creatures. All of them have this holy and blameless status. So you're not in an exclusive club to be holy and blameless because there are other heavenly creatures that have this. But guess what? Other heavenly creatures are not sons and daughters. See, by being a son and daughter of God, now you are an exclusive club. You are in an exclusive club with Jesus Christ. All those other statuses you may share with the angels, but to be a son and daughter of God, this is something that you share exclusively with Christ. That's why to be a son or daughter of God is a great thing. That is why Paul is making this point out of all the blessings that he can enumerate, he brings out the fact that you are adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is an exclusive status that is only obtained through Jesus Christ. All the other heavenly creatures, they don't have this status. We are the heirs with Christ. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 3. Paul tells the Corinthians that we will judge angels. You look at um, Hebrews chapter one, verse 14, we see that the angels, the Bible says this about them, that they are all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So the, the angels, their responsibility is to be these servants for us, who, who we, the people that would inherit salvation. So. Again, we have this elevated status even above the angels as sons and daughters of God. Yes, right now, angels, of course, are more powerful than you. They can do a lot of greater things than you. But when you are revealed to be like Christ on that day when you are like him, you have a status that is unmatched with anything else. That's what makes this status as sons and daughters such a big deal. That's what makes our adoption so great because we are exclusively sharing this adoption, this this sonship, this daughtership with Christ above all others. It's a big deal, which is why you, you may even look in John's prologue. If you didn't know, if you ever read the book of John, the gospel of John, the first 18 chapters are a prologue. It doesn't really, the book of John doesn't really start into 19. The first 18 verses, are considered to be a prologue. And in this prologue, John is given the big picture items. He's showing how Jesus Christ is divine. Jesus is one with the father. He shows up, he speaks about grace and truth. And the other thing that he brings up in John 1 12 is what? That we can be sons and daughters of God. John 1.12 reads this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So John understands how big of a deal it is to be a son and daughter of God that he puts it in his prologue before his gospel, before he begins to actually write on what Jesus did and how he lived. It's a major point in many of the apostles' books that you are a son and daughter of God. That's something my brothers and sisters, I can explain to you all day, but it is only to you actually begin to behold and understand the status that you have, that you will see the glory in it. And why Paul is putting it in here in the first part of Ephesians one. Your son and daughtership is a significant thing, which is why it bothers me so when I hear people say that we are all children of God. No, we are not all children of God. When we say that everybody's a child of God, guess what we do? We cheapen son and daughtership. Just like there's cheap grace, there's cheap son and daughtership when everybody in all of humanity gets this title. That is not how the Bible describes it. No, we are not by nature children of God. We are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature children of disobedience. So Paul says in verse Five, he has predestined us to adoption. That's why we are adopted into the family of God, because we are not naturally children of God. Veronica can't adopt Emma. Why? Because Emma's her natural-born child. Esmeralda can't adopt Nehemiah. Why? Because Nehemiah is her natural born child. You only adopt people who are not naturally born to you. And that is why Paul is using the word adoption. Because naturally we are not God's children. Naturally we are enemies of God. But it is through Christ that we get adopted into the family of God. So that's what adoption. Adoption points out that we're fallen. That's why we have to get adopted into the family of God, my brothers and sisters. And this is the beauty of this text here. That you and I, these fallen people, these people who have rebelled against Christ, Paul is saying here that we get to be adopted into the family of God, but he doesn't just say that we are adopted into the family of God. My text starts with, in love, he has predestined you to adoption. In love, he has predestined you to adoption according to the kind intention of his will. So people would, this what Paul is saying here. He's saying that it was God's kind intention of his will to love you by adopting you into his family. Do you see how this is a display of God's love? By God adopting you to his family, he's saying, i am being loving to you. By God predestining your adoption, that's God's way of being loving. It's kind of like this, Romans 5 talks about um, how God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinner, he died for us, right? That's God demonstrating or showing his love towards us. The same thing in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? God is showing or demonstrating his love by sending his son. But here we find that God is demonstrating or showing his love by adopting and predestining you into his family. God said, "That's loving," and it's so loving that we see John saying the same thing in First John. Look at First John three one. Turn to First John three one. John is saying the same thing. John is beholding his adoption status, his status as a son or daughter of God. Look what John says. Tell me if it sounds very familiar to Ephesians 5 and 6. 1 John 3, 1. Look what he says. See how great a love. What is the great love that John is going to describe? What love are you talking about, John? See, a great love the Father has what? Bestowed on us. What is this great love that the Father has bestowed on us? That he would, that we would be called what? Children of God as such as we are. So it's a loving thing for God to adopt you into his family to call you children of God. God calls that loving. He calls his predestinating you to adopt into his family as a loving act, a kind intention of his will. That's God demonstrating his love to you. That's why we don't let everybody just wear the title of sons and daughters of God. No, that is not something that is for everybody. This is something that God has done in his own sovereignty in his own will. He has decided that I'm going to love these people and this is how I'm going to love them. I'm going to allow them to be adopted into my family. I'm going to allow them to take on my name. I'm going to allow them to become sons and daughters of me. That is how God is loving you by giving you this status. That's why your status before God matters. You are sons and daughters of the Most High God. I know that may not sound like something great, but brothers and sisters, you praying and ask God to help you to behold this this great pleasure, this this great privilege of being his son or daughter. The apostles went through great strain to show you this. John is telling you here. John told you in first, in in John chapter one, how he has made a way for us to be adopted into the family of God. This is so vital to your walk. This is what I mean before you go and try to figure out what I need to do. First, behold, behold this status that God has given you to be a son and daughter of God. This is beautiful. This is a privilege that no one else shares. You share this with Christ. This is a beautiful thing, my brothers and sisters. And I just wanted to show you some of the benefits of this status. When you become into the family of God, understand this. and Pastor Brian brought it out early, you enter into this big, multinational, multicultural family. It's one of the beauties of entering into the, the family of God. And guess what, if you've never been a part of a big family, you are a part of one now. And if you've never had nieces and nephews, guess what? Because you're in the family of God with me, my children become your nieces and nephews. Yes, I have a spiritual mom, which is my mom, Paula, but in the family of God, I also have a new spiritual mom and sister, Judy. That's a spiritual mother. See, when you become into this big family of God, spiritual children, we produce spiritual children through evangelism and discipleship. You are part of this big family of God. It's a privilege, my brothers and sisters. It's something that you have to cherish and take value and stock in that you would carry God's name and being his son or daughter. Think about, and I'm gonna say this, I know they don't want me to say it, but I'm gonna put it out there. because it makes the point. Pastor Brian and Jordan, when my car broke down in Martinez, nine o'clock at night on a work night, jordan drives over an hour away to come pick me up i'm rejoicing like god i'm in a great family see that's 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 the family of god these these are these are part of the the benefits and the privileges of being in the family of god my car goes down pastor brian says here's my car not only that brother anthony said hey i got a car see that's being in the family i'm like i'm in a great family of god See, these are the right down benefits of being in his family, being adopted into the family of God. He has his family to take care of the others. So that's one of the benefits of being, I guess you would say that's more of the practical, nominal. We're not getting to the spiritual. We can. But one of the other benefits of being adopted into the family of God is when I'm going through the struggles of life, because I'm adopted into the family of God, I can call out, to my father, Abba. Why? Because the spirit of Christ now lives in me. See, it's a difference from when you call out to a complete stranger versus when you're calling out to your parents, right? It's a difference when you're calling out to somebody you've never known to when you're calling out mommy or or daddy. There's something different there. Why? Because you know this person has literally given you life. This person has watched over you, who has taken care of you, has clothed you, has fed you. And so it's something different to know when I'm down on my knees and I'm going through what I'm going through. And I can call out in the spirit of Christ, Abba, Father, and know that my father hears me. There's a comfort that comes from knowing that I'm a child of God and I'm and I have the ear of my father. That's one of the benefits. You often hear people will say that that don't know God. They'll say that when I'm when I'm praying and I'm asking God for something, it feels like I'm I'm talking to the air. I'm speaking to the air, and the truth of the matter is you are. If you are still separated from God, when you are speaking out, you are speaking as a stranger. So that is why it feels so cold. Yes, you're not talking to a father, so it should feel cold, it should feel a little different. Why? Because you are not speaking in the spirit of Abba Father, which only Christ gives. So of course, when you go down on your knees and you've never known God and it feels cold, like you're just speaking to the ceiling, you don't have the spirit of Abba Father in you. You don't have the the spirit of Christ. But we do, so when we go down to our knees, we know we're not calling out to a stranger. We're calling out to someone who's already demonstrated his love on the cross, who's, all, who's already showed us grace all throughout our life. And so now when we go to our knees, we can speak to Father, and that provides a comfort there. So Paul, back to Ephesians. So he said that we have been predestined as adoption to adoption as sons to Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Look how Paul ends this section, verse six. He ends this section with praise. Because of your adoption, because of the spiritual blessings that he has given you through Christ, because you have been chosen from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, Paul is showing us in verse six that it should lead to something. What? To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So what is he saying to the church of, in Ephesus? After you look at all these spiritual blessings, this should be the natural outpouring of your heart. You should begin to praise God for this grace that he has given you away. And as Pastor Brian helped me to see so clearly, the point he says we should praise God for is grace because grace speaks to the undeserving nature of it, meaning that you and I don't deserve to be children of God. You and I don't deserve to be holy and blameless before him. That's just God's grace upon you. And so when you realize that you are now a son and daughter of God, when you realize right now out of all the stuff you've done, that God right now sees you as holy and blameless before him, you should begin to praise God for his glorious grace because you realize I don't deserve it. That's what the grace is pointing to. I I, I don't deserve all of the spiritual blessings that I have in Christ. I I don't deserve to be called your son or your daughter. I I don't deserve to stand before you in in, in holy garments. I I deserve hell. I deserve wrath. But you're saying because of your grace, I received this. So because of that, I'm going to praise you. That's why six should lead you to praising God. As you step back and you behold and you see what God has done through Christ, it should lead you to praising him for his glorious grace, which he has bestowed on you and the beloved. Six should lead you to praise. You want to praise and worship motivation? It should be six right here. That's what he's saying. Read verses one through five. Six should lead you to saying praise God. Why? Because you realize I've been bestowed with all of these blessings, all of this goodness. And it was all through God's grace. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It was all God. So it should lead you to praise. That's why I said, I want to preach how Paul is teaching. He's not calling for any action here. Paul is calling for what praise praise God for what? For my status as his son or daughter. Praise God, for even though I've done all these sinful things against Him, I stand holy and blameless before Him. Praise God. That's what this should lead you to, my brothers and sisters. So, in your own time, my prayer as it's been this week is for you to go and read this text over. And as you read this text over, when you get to verse 6, there should be some type of praise in your spirit, there should be some type of praise in your mouth. There should be some type of gratefulness in your heart as you realize what you have just received because of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's mission here in this first chapter. Once you get a hold of this, then you can get into chapter four and you start living out what you have just heard. But for the right now, Paul just wants you to praise God for his goodness, for his blessings. Let us pray here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness upon us. We thank you for giving us, former rebels and enemies of you, the status to be your sons and daughters. We thank you for choosing us from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you, because we could never accomplish this status on our own. We thank you for your goodness, God. And Lord, it's my prayer, and it will continue to be my prayer, God, that you help me and the body here, Lord God, to just behold all of your spiritual blessings that you have bestowed upon us. Help us to behold you and your glory and who you are. Help us to be more thankful. Help us to see you high and lifted up. To remove the attention from our our focus from our sins and the things we need to do, but back just on you and your nature, your beauty of who you are. Help us to see clearly, God, outside of you we will not see. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. amen. So my brothers and sisters, I. That's really my prayer. It's just that you go home and pray and ask him to help you open up the text and to see glory in it. Um, And not that you just read a word, but that you see glory. Think about this. It was the kind intention of his will to love you by predestining you to the adoption of sons and daughters. Allow that to just stick in your mind, your brain. It's God demonstrating this love for you by making you a son or daughter. Amen. How are we looking? Um, do we have time for a Q and A? Or I don't know where we are with that. Let's see. Oh yeah, we're past. <laughs> I know. And uh, while, while I said that, I wanna say this. Me and Pastor Brian were talking about it. I know in the American church culture, let's, we're all affected by culture, right? And part of our American church culture is church is like a checklist item sometimes. We go to church for an hour and a half, and I'm out. That's it. No more, no more, no less. You go a minute over, people are bothered. But let's really take Sunday out of all the days. It's one day a week we get together. Let's not be so caught up in looking at the clock and not so mindful. I need to do this and that. Yes, we have lives, and I get it, and there's things you got to do. But on Sunday, let's say this is the day we're all coming together. Let's, we're not gonna f- get fixated on the clock and how long we are here. If we're here praying for, I don't know, for a while. I know there's been many churches they'll spend four hours just praying together. I'm not saying that we are doing that, but let's be open to whatever the Spirit of God moves and says, so um, I just wanna put that because I know we're all accustomed to, right? To doing things in a certain time. Um, and we want to stick to a structure. We don't want to just loosely do things. But if God a- speaks and says, well, we need to stay longer, then let's stay longer. Amen? All right. Anybody have any final comments? Just any little brief thoughts? I know we got to go, but just want to put that out there. Just real quick. Yeah. Um, you're talking about the Lord and instead of focusing on your sin, mm-hmm. I just had another verse that would go along with that is 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul says but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord mm. are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just Jesus from the Lord the Spirit. Amen. Exactly what you were saying just Paul says it in different Dif- ways. Yeah, he's much more eloquent than I am. <laughs> I was also thinking that um, along the same lines as what I was praying earlier this morning about not um, we we are thankful and grateful for the things God does for us, but not to be so grateful that we lose sight of the giver of those. Amen. Things. Yeah. And that how it says in the word you never read um to the praise of the glory of what Jesus did. It's always to the praise of the glory of one of His attributes. Yeah. Of Amen. It's not what He what He does. And um you know, I don't wanna make a too big a deal out of that, but I just think it's so easy to get caught up, you know, it's wonderful or beautiful things that God does for us and have those things flow out of the right. for us. But just let's not forget that those things will pass. Yeah. Those things will pass yeah. away, but who Jesus is will never pass away. You know, and he's the one that we worship and Yes, yeah. he wants us to be grateful. Yeah. But not to the point where we Yep. Then we turn into idol. It turns to an idol. Yes, and now, yes. yeah. And he didn't give us those for no. those things to Right. No. Yeah. Amen. So, hey amen, brothers and sisters. We are, uh move forward. Please pray. I ask the Lord to help you to see more of his glory. That's the one word sentence from all of that. Pray. I ask to behold God, not just to see but that you behold and become like Peter was, which is why I brought that text. He's seen it and he dropped everything, right? Because he beheld the glory of Christ. We want to behold God in scripture. Heavenly Father, you're good. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the cup which represents your blood, the bread in your body, Help us to behold that, God. Help us to see that truly, Lord. I know we'll never know the cost of how much it costs, Lord, to see our sins on the cross. I know the depths of that we will not know. But God, will you reveal some of that glory, Lord, God? Help us to see, God, that when we come up and take the bread and the cup, Lord, that it's not just a ritual, God. Oh, Lord, that we behold and understand what our fate was before, ever touching that cup and that bread and where our fate is now when we grab it, Lord. May we be mindful of what you have done, Jesus. The blood that was shed, separation you, Christ, from the Father. Coming here in the DNA, living the life, a perfect life. Lord, help us to be mindful and behold that to be thankful when we put that cup to our lips and that bread in our mouth that you are true bread that you are true drink and that your life that you gave has now resulted in us having new life you gave your life as a ransom God this is our prayer help us to behold Lord Amen. If you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you come and partake with us the Lord's Supper. Um, Take it and hold it and we'll do it all together at the end.